It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Good morning and welcome to the Beyond Zero radio show, broadcasting from 3CR Studios in Fitzroy. You can stream our podcasts on 3cr.org.au or at the bz.org.au website. I'm Laura and I'll be facilitating an expert interview today with Paul Schuster and John Farrell. Firstly, I'd like to introduce our expert interviewer for today. Paul is an energy engineer and analyst. He's the director of True Demand, a consultancy delivering energy efficiency, solar off-grid solutions, and energy market analysis. He's a consultant at CME, an economics firm focused on Australia's energy and utility industries. His most recent publication, penned with the CME director, Bruce Mountain, is an article in the current issue of IEE's Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers Power Energy magazine called Solar Solar Everywhere, examining the economics of rooftop solar PV in Australia. Hello, Paul. How are you doing today? Oh, good, thank you. Thank you for having me for the show today. You're welcome. You made it in all right. I did, thank Bright you. and early. Yes. Today, Paul will be interviewing John Farrell, who is joining us live from Minneapolis in the USA. John is a senior researcher for the Institute for Local and Self-Reliance, ILSR, in Minneapolis, USA, specialising in energy policy developments that best expand the benefits of local ownership and dispersed generation of renewable energy. ILSR recently celebrated its 40th anniversary. John has written extensively on the economics and the scale of renewable energy, the benefits of decentralised energy generation, and the policy and rules that support locally owned and distributed generation of renewable energy. He's an author of energyselfrelianceStates.org, a distributed energy generation resource. He's also wrote one of the leading summaries of the feed-in tariffs for the U.S. electricity policy market. His work is published regularly in Clean Technica, uh, Renew Economy, and he joins us on the phone today. Have we got him online yet? I I don't think we have, Laura. Uh, If you just hold with us for one moment. Paul, would you just like to introduce yourself and how you became interested in renewable energy? And we'll just get John on the line. Yeah, sure, Laura, no problem. And again, thank you for having me on the show. Look, uh, I used to work in the oil and gas industry of all places uh, as a structural engineer working for ESSO Australia and offshore Bass Strait. And five years working, I I met um, a lady by the name of Fiona Armstrong, who's the head of the Climate Alliance and Health Alliance. And she talked about climate change in a way that I I never I never heard about before, the impact on coal emissions and so on. And I was inspired to to get into the work of renewable energy and climate policy in general. So I decided to go back to school and finish my Master's of Engineering now in renewable energy at RMIT University and uh, started my consultancy, True Demand, looking at off-grid and solar solutions. In addition to that, I had the great fortune of working with CME Australia Director Bruce Mountain, working in the area of um, energy economics, solar PV, feed-in tariffs, examining the economics of solar, and we just finished our article, which has been published in IEEE magazine, Power and Energy magazine, called Solar, Solar Everywhere. 
and uh, we've been examining the impact of solar on Australia, uh, looking at the costs and benefits uh, of rooftop solar PV and how that's going to transpire with reducing feed-in tariffs. Solar PV owners are looking at other ways to increase their rooftop uptake of solar. Due to the decline in feed-in tariffs, they're looking for other ways of, of accessing possibly finance to resolve that. So what we're seeing is 1.4 million rooftop solar PV systems in Australia continuing to expand. We've been really interested in, in the latest developments uh, with the Tesla battery system. The Powerwall, which is retailing in the US for US $3,000 per system. It will be really interesting to see where we see that in Australia, what prices we do see. We're hoping be in the realms of $5,000 Australian fully installed because all you need is an inverter. We don't even need an inverter. You can use your existing inverter at the home and tying your battery system with your rooftop solar. So some really interesting times integrating rooftop PV, battery storage, some very, very exciting times and the economics are becoming all the more complex. The integration of networks, we're seeing how the network operators are challenging the business models of rooftop PV through increasing the fixed charge on your retail prices. We're seeing the network costs are rising. Well, they're they're rising and they're they're kind of flatline. They're not declining, put it that way, um, even though they really need to be. We're going to see some real reduction in the costs of of electricity for Australian consumers. So I think we've now got John on the line, is that right? Yeah, that's great, Paul. Thank you so much for that introduction. John, are you with us? I am. Hello, how are you, John? I'm very well, thank you. Great, thank you so much for coming on with us today. Really looking forward to have you interviewed by Paul. I've already introduced you. Uh, You won't have heard it because you weren't with us just yet, but I'll hand you over to Paul and he's going to take on the interview. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thanks, Laura. John, great to great to yeah, be with you across the Pacific, and, and thanks for your time this morning and in the afternoon over there. Before we we generally start these interviews, we'd like to ask our our panelists, you know, how you got into the renewable industry um, and energy policy in general. How did you get started? That's a great question, and for me, it's really a story of of an accident. I uh, was looking for a job in Minneapolis back in two thousand and six, and called up this little place called the Institute for Local Self-Reliance that I had read a little bit about and just said, I'm interested in learning what you do. And they said, we've got a job opening for someone on our energy program. Why don't you just interview for it? And they were apparently impressed with what I had done previously, which uh, wasn't a whole lot other than a few energy policy courses in graduate school. And so in some ways, the rest is uh, the story of a lot of on-the-job training and some good leadership and some good mentors that got me into it from the angle of understanding the policy and the economics of renewable energy. And then as I became more experienced working on the policy and and with many advocates on uh, distributed and decentralized renewable energy systems and policies. Okay, fantastic. And that was certainly some of my interest too, the integration of of economics and, and technology. So I really appreciate that. Before we go into the findings of your most recent report, Public Rooftop Revolutions, could you provide our listeners with the most important, I suppose, milestones in in solar policy in the United States, particularly relevant to rooftop PV? Perhaps we could talk capital subsidies, export subsidies, payments for homeowners. Well, the crucial policy that has shaped the way that our PV industry has developed is really net metering, which simply allows people to generate uh, electricity on their rooftop and and use it to essentially turn back their meter 
It's actually this wonderful product of archaic technology, which is to say that the, the meters that we had couldn't really do anything more sophisticated than simply turn backwards when you put electricity into them as opposed to taking electricity out of them. And so net metering was sort of a necessary compromise with the kind of technology that we had available at the time folks started installing solar 20 or 30 years ago. But it's been very successful because it allows people to simply get a, a bill credit by reducing their kilowatt-hour usage with the solar on their rooftop. And even though the utilities have started to fight back at this, there's a lot of evidence that customers who have installed solar and, and who have used this policy to reduce their energy bills tend to be providing more benefit to the electricity system and, and, to, and to other folks uh, than they get out of it in terms of their savings on their electric bill. Although now that is becoming a point of tension for utilities who for many, many years have made their money by building new power plants to meet power demand and selling electricity, both of which are undermined when their customers are installing solar. And so we're, we're coming to a head now over that policy and, and how it will look in the future. Okay. So our listeners may have heard the U.S. federal tax credits as well. Is that something that's applied in, in, in a rooftop PV in the U.S.? Yes, I shouldn't have overlooked that. Although there have been some state-based or utility-based incentives and rebates, and they have played a role, at least in the early years, it is the federal 30% tax credit that applies to both uh, residential and commercial customers that will be expiring at the end of 2016 that has been a big driver of the development of solar. Although its expiration would be a disappointment, especially for residential-scale solar, which is you know, still somewhat more costly than the larger-scale solar, there is some indication, especially in more developed markets, that uh, that tax credit won't necessarily be required by folks in order to make a return on investment investing in solar. So there might be, a, I guess, sort of a pause in the solar market in the U.S. temporarily, but because the cost of solar keeps coming down and the electricity prices continue to go up, um, there's some hope that even with the expiration of that tax credit, should it happen, uh, we'll continue to see strong growth in the U.S. solar market. And, and John, your organization recently released a, a report looking into the PV potential in the United States, a report called Public Rooftop Revolutions. Would you care to share with our listeners what was your motivation behind this report and the key findings and those that you found most interesting? Yeah, there were sort of two things that we were thinking of. You know, I, I have published a couple of the reports in this series looking more broadly at the potential for uh, rooftop PV nationwide on, on home rooftops, on business rooftops, and, and across all the 50 states. Um, and what what was really interesting was that in, in recent years, you've had a lot of cities specifically looking at um, making commitments around climate change, looking to reduce their energy consumption and their energy bills, but not a whole lot of cities that were looking at solar. And this is in spite of the fact that in about half of our states, cities and and, and private entities, you know, individuals can sign a solar lease, which is to say that somebody will put solar on your rooftop, often do it at uh, very low to no charge, and allow you to start saving money on your electric bill without having to put up any money of your own, which is, of course, very attractive to cities that see their budgets as constrained. And so we were thinking to ourselves, well, why is it that cities aren't taking advantage of this? What is the scope of the opportunity that's out there? And what we found is that, you know, on, in, in those states where cities have that very simple leasing option, um, there's about six, uh, sorry, about 5 gigawatts, 5,000 megawatts of solar on municipal rooftops that we thought could be built relatively quickly and at almost no expense to cities. 
focusing just on cities that are 100,000 people or larger. To put that in perspective, the U.S. as a whole has about 20,000 megawatts of solar installed. So this 5,000 megawatts would be a fairly substantial addition, uh, and it would re- represent millions of dollars in, in savings on electric bills for cities, which then, of course, could spend that in other uh, uh, areas of the public interest. And to put that in context for our Australian listeners, five gigawatts of of, of solar that you're, that you're suggesting, John, would be the would be more than Australia's entire capacity of rooftop solar that's currently on Australian rooftops, more than four four gigawatts of solar. So that would be quite a project. But like you say, sounds like it um, could be quite readily available with the financing mechanisms. And your report mentions those financing mechanisms. And I was really interested in the differences in the prices, 15.5 cents a kilowatt hour being the highest for self-financed and to the lowest being 11.2 cents per kilowatt hour from the private sector. Would you mind outlining how these finance mechanisms work? Yeah, so the, you know that is sort of the crux of the issue. You, you referenced or asked about the federal tax credit, and that's sort of the issue that we've always had with our incentive policies for solar and other renewables in the United States is that we've used the tax code uh, to let people write off their taxes when they do investments in renewable energy. And we have a lot of entities, whether they're not-for-profit organizations or cities uh, or counties or other forms of local government or state government that have been interested in investing in renewable energy but uh, don't, aren't eligible for those tax incentives because they don't pay federal taxes. So these, uh, this arrangement, these solar leasing arrangements, were set up really for two reasons. One was to give access to those entities that wouldn't otherwise be able to access those incentives because you can have a, third part, for, a for-profit leasing company that can take the incentives and then sell you a system uh, sort of uh, with at least part of those savings passed along. And then the second thing, of course, is just convenience, that about two-thirds of residential solar installations in the United States are done via these leasing arrangements, and it's simply because homeowners might not have $20,000 sitting around in the savings account that they could use to invest in solar, um, but they do have an opportunity to save money on their electric bill because they might have a nice sunny rooftop and a leasing company can come in and, and put that on their roof um, and offer them a way to save, even if it's just a few dollars a month uh, in the early years, uh, and, and more as time goes on, if, as long as electricity prices continue to rise. And, and, of course, the customer then has no responsibility for the maintenance and operation of that system. Um, so, you know, con- between convenience and access to incentives, the leasing arrangement has made it a lot easier for folks. And, and you know, there's a cost to that, too, and we talk about that in the report, that you know, a lot of the economic benefits of that system then with a lease arrangement will be taken by the leasing company. You know, they're going to take their cut as providing that service. And if a customer did did take up a leasing arrangement, what happens in, in the case of, of stock turnover after a few years you, you sell your house? How does, how does that arrangement continue on? Well, that's a great question, and there's no standard answer for that. And in fact, that may end up being somewhat of a problem as, as we move forward, there have been a, a number of interesting studies that suggest that having solar on your rooftop increases the value of your home if you own the system. But if you're leasing the system, sometimes the leases might be transferable, um, but it can raise an issue when you're selling your home that a home, a potential buyer may look at that and say, well, that's, you know, that's another legal document, another legal arrangement, another level of complexity that I simply don't want to have to deal with when I'm shopping for a home. Um, and so, you know, truth be told, they actually don't have a lot of experience with that. You know, most of the systems that have been installed on, on homes in the U.S. 
have only been up for five years or less, and most people stay in their homes at least that many years. So we're, we're just going to start in the next five years, really, start to see what the impact is of those solar leases, whether or not it, the buyers will see it as a value, and they will save them money on their electric bill, or whether or not um, they'll have customers who find that it's more difficult to sell their home because that additional legal uh, agreement uh, creates a constraint. I also found interesting in your, in your report, John, that the power purchase agreements or PPAs is not available in 25 of those states. Is that referring to the fact that half half the states in the United States don't offer leasing products or they're not allowed to provide leasing products? Right. So in most U.S. states, we still have monopoly service territories for our utilities, which is to say that depending on where you live, there may only be one utility that's allowed to sell electricity in that, in that service territory. Um, so it, there are some states where that's not true, and in those cases, anybody can sell electricity to you, uh, including who used to, person to, uh, the company that used to be the incumbent utility. And, and in a few of the states where we have these monopolies, they have passed laws saying somebody selling you power off your own rooftop does not con- constitute them being a utility, so they're not really violating that monopoly service territory. But in about half of states, that's not the case, um, and the utilities have successfully pushed to maintain that the law prevents anybody from selling power to other than themselves. Uh, and that's going to continue to be a problem for those states. And, and, a, and, a, and a really it's an indicator of a larger problem of the electricity system as it has been, which is to say that we, we no longer really need a large concentration of capital to deploy infrastructure uh, power generation uh, on our system because we're in a new era where power generation can be modular in very small pieces like so- rooftop solar or, or wind projects that are much, much smaller on a megawatt basis than a large coal or natural gas or nuclear plant of the 20th century. And so this third-party ownership thing and the challenge that prevents the utility monopoly is just one of many reasons why that whole question of whether or not we should have utility monopolies is increasingly being discussed by utility regulators and, and legislators in the United States. And what lessons have you learned in, in the development of these financing products? Are you seeing uh, the terms and conditions change over, over time or you know, what sort of products have evolved? I've heard the likes of Solar City, for example. Would, would you say there's a, one or two major players in the market or are there a range of lots and lots of players, utility companies? You know, the... the vast majority of the solar leases that are sold are done by three or four very large national operators, Solar City and a couple of other, and two or three others. Whose names I forget off the top of my head. Obviously, Solar City is kind of the first mover and then the most prominent one. But um, what's interesting about the leasing market is that, um, well, there, there have been a few interesting pieces. One was that there was a little bit of a a dust-up over the fact that leasing companies were allowed for the purposes of taking the tax credits, uh, which they did on behalf of their customers, to not report exactly how much they paid for the system for that 30% discount, but um, uh, what was called fair market value. And, and the issue there was it allowed them to sort of average over time the cost of the systems they were installing at a time when costs were falling very fast. And so they likely were able to collect millions of dollars more in tax credits than they would have been entitled to had they been required to report the actual value of those systems. So that's that's kind of one implication of having these middlemen uh, in, uh, operating and, and, and deploying solar. And the second thing is that the leasing terms are not always 
very favorable or they may have assumptions baked in that uh, don't present that a very good economic return for the customer. You know, for example, the leasing company really is only competing against what price the utility can offer. They're not trying to offer you the lowest possible price based on the cost of, of installing solar. And so they might say, oh, you know, our, our leasing product will give you a $5 a month savings now, and we're going to have our lease price escalate by 2% per year over the next 20 years because we're assuming that electricity prices are going to go up by 5% per year. But the customer's taking on that risk, and what if electricity prices don't, in fact, go up by that much? They might, they might not save very much money at all. And, you know, the good news is they didn't risk a lot of their own money in order to take on this lease arrangement. But there can be some provisions in these lease agreements that end up being not particularly favorable to the customer, whereas the leasing company is going to make out very well. And we've also seen significant, we also read in your report, John, significant variability in, in the cost of solar. Um, and the latest US Sunshot program revealed price differences of $2 per watt um, between the lowest and highest prices in, in the different states. And and you also mentioned in your report that a, a significant variability within many states. Do you see the variability impacting on, on leasing products and, and prices? Yeah, I haven't done a whole lot of investigation into how that has impacted the leasing prices, although I would guess that the leasing companies probably, uh, at least internally, are getting fairly good installed costs because they do have some economies of scale that they're capturing some standardization within the company. So I would guess that they're near the lower end of that range, and in fact, they can be a force for pushing prices down because they are standardizing their work. You know, some of, the, some of what really is impacting that, though, frankly, in the U.S. market is the difference um, regulations of local governments around permitting solar and, and licensing solar installers, et cetera. And it's that kind of standardization that's really going to need to uh, come into play in order to continue to drive solar costs down. I think the leasing companies can be very helpful that way because simply as the market grows, more local jurisdictions are going to adopt kind of the best practices of regulation and permitting prices, et cetera. And um, I'd be really interested, John, to hear your thoughts on on uh, the extension of solar leasing into the battery storage market. I know here in Australia, and I personally very excited with the, the announcement by Tesla and the introduction of the the Powerwall battery storage. Um, are you are you aware or familiar with with customers and friends, colleagues who are who are now talking about solar and storage uh, leasing or just just buying storage in general? Well, I think the potential here is enormous. Um, you know, right now, the economics of being sort of off the grid are not particularly good. Electricity prices are generally speaking low enough that it would take, you know, 20 or 30 years or more with a solar and a, and a battery system alone to and, and sort of going off the grid uh, to make your money back. But that being said, I think there's going to be some really interesting opportunities in two ways. One is that um, as the markets are made more dynamic and competitive, there's going to be ways that batteries, uh, because of how fast they can respond to the needs of the grid in terms of helping maintain a constant voltage and the, and the frequency um, and these other so-called ancillary services are going to allow people who have them to make money, not just storing energy from one to, you know, from noon until nighttime, for example, from a solar array, but by responding very quickly to, to small variations in, in the demand on the grid system. Uh, the second way in which I think they're very interesting is that a lot of utilities 
uh, had two charges on, on customers in the U.S. for commercial customers, uh, a per kilowatt hour charge for how much they're using uh, in total, but also what's called a demand charge, which is to say uh, sort of the, the size of the pipe that they provide to that company. And it's based on their peak usage over a 15-minute interval in any given month. And solar with storage allows companies to very reliably uh, uh, carve down that peak, especially if they're uh, a company that's you know, operating generally during the daytime and, and able to use solar and a battery to cover their usage over that time period. So um, I think there's going to be some very interesting opportunities for solar and storage to, to do that work. And I think leasing companies will be very quick to jump onto that because, of course, any entity, whether an individual or a business, is going to be looking for a way to get into this market without having to put up a lot of their own money. And we've got a co- uh, we have a couple of question, a couple of minutes left, John. Um, so I'd like to just end end this interview by asking what continues to sustain your interest in this space, and what does get you excited to continue to be a senior researcher. The really exciting thing for me is the prospect that the technologies that we have in play, whether that's rooftop solar or power wall battery packs or smartphone apps that allow you to manage your air conditioner or your heating system or your lighting or all this, are combining to really make it possible to envision what I like to call a democratic energy system, small d, um, in that we can decentralize the control and the ownership of our electricity system in a way that disperses the economic benefits. I mean, we spend collectively in the United States about $350 billion a year on electricity, and there's a real possibility to allow that revenue to remain within communities all across the country um, because we're going to have the management tools and the power generation options and the power storage options at our fingertips uh, economically to allow us to do that at a community level. Um, And that possibility uh, makes it exciting for me to go to work every day and to work with the people that I work with on the policies and and the practical methods that we can use to get there. Okay, that's great. Really appreciate your time, John. Thank you very much, and I'll hand it over to Laura to finish. Thank you very much, John, for joining us today. Thank you, Paul, for coming in as well. It's been really great to have both of your expertise on the show today. Just to remind you, you can grab that podcast on 3cr.org.au or you can get it on our BZE website, which is bze.org.au. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.